Chris Watts and Shanann Rusick met online in 2010 after Chris sent Shanann a Facebook friend request. Both living in North Carolina at the time, Shanann decided to meet Chris in person and was smitten. The two began dating and ultimately married on November 3, 2012, after which they moved to Frederick, Colorado so Chris could work in the energy field and so the two of them could start a family. In December 2013, Shanann gave birth to Bella, their first daughter, and in 2015, Shanann gave birth to their second daughter, Celeste, whom they called Cece. From the outside, they appeared to be the all-American family. Shanann posted videos and photos of her children regularly on Facebook. One such video from June 2018 depicted Shanann surprising her husband with the news that she was pregnant with their third child. In the video, Chris, wearing a saccharine smile, can be heard saying, that's awesome. But all was not as it seemed. That same month, Chris began talking with Nicole Kessinger, a geologist at Anadarko Petroleum, where the two were co-workers. He told Nicole about Shanann, Bella, and Celeste, but claimed he and his wife were in the process of getting divorced. Meanwhile, Shanann and the girls left for a six-week trip to North Carolina while Chris stayed behind to work. At the end of July 2018, Chris told Nicole his divorce was final. By this time, the two had begun a physical relationship and the couple saw each other frequently. Meanwhile, Shanann and their daughters were still visiting family in North Carolina. At the end of July, Chris flew out to join his family. Shanann text messaged a friend during this time, saying she felt something had changed in her relationship with her husband and noted Chris no longer wanted to be physically intimate with her. The family returned to Colorado in early August, and although there continued to be tension, things seemed to improve by the time Shanann left for a business trip to Arizona on August 9th, during which time Chris watched their daughters. While Shanann was away, he hired a babysitter to watch Bella and Cece so he could go out on a date with Nicole, who still believed Chris was divorced. Shanann became suspicious of Chris after she saw charges on their bank account that were inconsistent with Chris's story that he had gone to a baseball game. Shanann returned from her business trip in the early morning hours of August 13th, after being dropped off by her friend Nicole Atkinson. It was later that same day that Atkinson contacted the police to say she was worried something had happened to Shanann. She told police that Shanann had not answered any of her calls or text messages and that she had missed a doctor's appointment that morning. Atkinson insisted this was very out of character for Shanann. When a police officer responded to the Watts house to do a welfare check, Atkinson met him there, followed shortly thereafter by Chris. Chris gave the officer permission to enter the home where they located Shanann's purse, wallet, and cell phone. Her car was in the garage. The girls were missing, as were their favorite blankets. Chris told the officer that Shanann had told him she was going to a friend's house, but he did not have any other information about where she may have gone. A search of Shanann's phone showed that Chris had texted her several times over the course of the morning, to which there was no response. When questioned by the police officer, Chris told him he had not seen his wife or daughters since he left for work at approximately 5.15 or 5.30 that morning. During this conversation, a neighbor of the Watts family asked Chris and the police officer to come to his home and look at the video recorded by a camera in his front yard. The video showed Chris loading items into his truck in the early morning hours. Neither the Watts front door camera or the neighbor's camera showed Shanann or the girls leaving the house at any point during the day. 
Later on, and in private, the neighbor told the police officer that he thought Chris was acting strange, both in the video and while they were looking for Shanann and the girls. On August 14th, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation issued an endangered missing alert for Shanann, Bella, and Celeste. And later that day, Chris went on the local news to plead for the safe return of his wife and daughters. The following day, the FBI joined the investigation, and while at the police department for questioning, Chris agreed to take a polygraph, as was suggested by one of the detectives. Later on, Chris was informed he failed the polygraph, at which time the detectives working the case urged him to tell them the truth about what had happened to Shanann and the girls. At one point, the polygraph examiner asked Chris if Shanann killed the girls, and he in turn killed her. Despite their allegations that he was somehow responsible for the disappearance of his wife and daughters, Chris denied it. He asked to speak with his father alone, which they allowed. The conversation was recorded, and Chris could be heard telling his father the very story suggested to him by the polygraph examiner, that Shanann had smothered their daughters to death after he told her he wanted to end their relationship. He told his father he was so upset that he killed her and disposed of all three of their bodies. When the detectives returned, Chris continued to state Shanann had killed their daughters. He told them he disposed of their bodies at his work site, placing his daughters in oil tanks and burying his wife in a nearby shallow grave. On August 21, 2018, Chris Watts was charged with three counts of first-degree murder, two additional charges for the victims being aged 12 or younger, one charge of unlawfully terminating a pregnancy, and three charges for tampering with a body. On November 6, 2018, he pled guilty to all nine counts. While eligible for the death penalty, Shanann's parents asked that it not be pursued. Chris was sentenced to five life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus 48 years for unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and 36 years for tampering with the bodies. The same day as his sentencing, Shanann's parents sued him for wrongful death in civil court. On November 18, 2019, Shanann's parents won their civil suit and were awarded $6 million, ensuring Watts could never profit from the murders. While initially incarcerated in the Colorado Department of Corrections, Chris Watts was transferred to prison in Wisconsin due to concerns about his safety. A couple of months after his transfer, Watts participated in a five-hour interview where he finally provided details about the murders. He said on the morning of August 13th, he woke Shanann as he was getting ready for work so they could talk about their marriage. She confronted him about having an affair, which he denied. He told her they would not stay together and that he did not love her. He said he strangled her to death after she told him he would not see their daughters again. According to Watts, their older daughter Bella entered the room and asked what was wrong with her mother. Watts then wrapped Shanann in a sheet, put her body on the floorboard of his truck, and put his daughters in the back seat next to their dead mother. While he drove to his worksite, he considered killing his daughters and himself. Once there, he smothered Celeste in the back seat while Bella watched. He put Celeste's body in an oil tank and then returned to the car and did the same to Bella, who briefly fought back before succumbing. He also put her body in an oil tank and then buried Shanann's body nearby. When describing the murders, he said, this was the epitome of being angry, the epitome of showing a rage, the epitome of losing your mind. He said he felt as if something else was controlling him. One of the most haunting details to come from the interview included Chris Watts describing the last words of his daughter Bella after witnessing him strangle her mother and sister. 
Watts stated that Bella softly pleaded, Daddy, no. This episode is about the Watts family murders. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark sides of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And Dr. David Morelos. So David, this is such a terrible story, and it's really one that hits close to home, as this occurred just about, what, half an hour or so from where we live? Right. So as you can imagine, this story was all over the local news, and it made national news as well. So this was a case we were following pretty carefully when it was unfolding in 2018. And now that Netflix has released American Murder, The Family Next Door, it's renewed an interest in the case for many individuals. So just as a disclaimer, neither David nor I have ever met or spoken to Chris Watts. So we don't have any personal knowledge about this case. But, you know, this case was very interesting to me because it reminded me quite a bit of the Lacey Peterson case back in 2002. You remember that, David? Absolutely. That's exactly what it reminded me of. Yeah. So in that case, Scott Peterson was convicted of killing his wife, who was also pregnant with their son at the time. Very, very parallel cases. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, there are certain differences to the cases as well. Um, but definitely very reminiscent of that Lisey Peterson case. Okay, so I'll be honest in saying right off the bat that killers of any kind are much more your wheelhouse than mine, Jessica. You know, I wrestled with this one a bit, trying to form some sort of opinion on the Chris Watts case and the topic of family annihilators in general. Back in the episode we did about DeFeo and Amityville, I talked about my doubts about demonic possession as a supernatural occurrence but rather as a psychological issue of integrating darkness by the person doing the killing. In other words, DeFeo had demons as unresolved darkness in his life, but not a purely evil supernatural being inhabiting his body, at least in my opinion. And I think that we hear a lot of, well, killers or just people that that commit crimes say that, you know, they have demons. And I don't think that most of the time they mean that they literally were possessed by a demon, but I think it does get more to that psychological aspect like you discussed. Right. Uh, You know, I know Watts did mention feeling like something, quote, took him over when he committed the killings, but this seems to be a pretty common description by people who do commit acts like that, just like you said, at least anecdotally. In other words, I've never read any real research in this area. So let's talk again about this idea of, quote, possession. As in the Amityville episode, I don't really believe in purely evil supernatural beings inhabiting somebody. And I say that only because nothing in my life experience has ever given me an inclination that this happens. In other words, even with the population of criminals we work with, I've never encountered what I would call pure evil. 
I've met some very scary men capable of pretty evil acts, but I do what I do as a substance abuse counselor with this population because in the end, even with some of the evil things these men have done, I truly believe they are redeemable. I wouldn't do my job if I didn't believe that people can change themselves on some fundamental level. I'm sure many would argue with me, which is fine. But there is a kind of possession that I did want to talk about in relation to Chris Watts. This comes from the Jungian perspective that I often like to bring to the show and that you've heard me talk about a lot in the past, Jessica. Yeah, you know, just a little here and there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the idea that I wanted to hit on has to do with Jung's idea that everyone is made of essentially two sides, one representing the masculine and one the feminine. Biological sex will determine which side is more dominant, generally speaking, but both sides are always present. The masculine side, known as the animus, is the logos side. This side is about determining problems and fixing them. Getting things done, rules, contracts, that sort of thing. Another way to, to say this is that it's, the, it's instrumental in nature. Get from point A to point B as quickly and as efficiently as possible. On the other side of the spectrum, we have the feminine, known as the anima. This is the part that I really wanted to talk about in relation to Chris Watts. In a man, the anima is also commonly referred to as the, quote, soul or the life energy that allows men to experience joy and other forms of life energy. It allows us to laugh, fall in love, to be creative in our lives. Jung argued that it was a man's relationship with this side of himself that would ultimately dictate how he approached, understood, and treated women in his life. In the case of men, there are essentially two major battles that he must face in his life. One is to face and ultimately integrate his own darkness, otherwise known as the shadow. The second true battle comes from understanding and nurturing his anima, the feminine aspects of his psyche. In a best case scenario, the anima in a man's psyche will go through an evolution over the course of his life, that being from a primitive version to a much more sophisticated one. If the process gets stuck anywhere along the line, or if the man is not skillful in dealing with this aspect of himself, he will most likely run into problems with the women in his life in some way, shape, or form. Like all of the aspects of the psyche, the anima in a man demands to be acknowledged. If the man is paying attention and doing his inner work, as Jung would call it, the work we do on ourselves as self-development, he will nurture his anima and encourage her to evolve from Eve, or the mother, which is the woman who was there just to take care of him, to Helen, which is the next stage, and portrayed now as a sexual being. After this comes Mary, or the whole woman with whom a man can have a much deeper and meaningful relationship, and lastly comes Sophia, or life force spiritual energy that is available to the man that is full wisdom and creativity and a truly integrated part of himself not separate from it. Okay, so hopefully I'm making sense here. I think you are. You know, it's it's very interesting because um, I think sometimes in our society, men are socialized to really focus on that masculine energy. Absolutely. And, you know, it really kind of goes along with the theme of our podcast that, that things don't exist in this truly dichotomous form, that one thing cannot exist without the other. And I think that that is really kind of what you're saying, right? That men have to develop both sides of themselves. Of course, absolutely. One side will always be dominant, usually, in any person. Mm -hmm. But the other side absolutely has to be respected and it has to be acknowledged and given its due. 
So each of the, these representations of the anima will dictate how the man sees women outside of himself as he grows up from boyhood into adolescence and then into adulthood. Problems start to arise when a man cannot figure out how to relate to his inner anima, seeks to repress it somehow, or becomes stuck, unable to let it evolve. There is an idea in Jungian psychology that when the anima is repressed, that is, not properly acknowledged and integrated, she turns into something, you guessed it, dark. When this happens, we say that the man is anima-possessed. Essentially, this means that he, being unable to connect with his very positive life force and creative energy, he becomes sullen, moody. Moods is the most common place where the anima will possess men. They often become depressed or angry or, in extreme cases, violent. So remember, we were talking about aspects of the man's internal psyche here, right? Well, as long as he is unconscious of his internal anima, he will not own it onto himself. Instead, what he will do is project it onto the women in his life. In the Netflix documentary on Chris Watts that we watched, there was some mention of Shanann being the dominant one in the relationship. That's not to say that she was a bad person or anything like that, but it seemed clear that she was the one who had the vision of where she wanted them to go as a couple and as a family. She had drive, ambition, and she had bigger dreams for them. It seemed that Chris was letting her take this role as a projection of what might be called a primitive anima, that is, the inner feminine aspect of himself that was not very developed for a man his age, and certainly not for a father of two girls with another child on the way. Internally, he was doing battle. He was fighting what we call the, quote, terrible mother or the mother complex, which is the virulent and controlling form of the anima. Quick story. I did a lot of research on this particular psychological concept for my dissertation. One way to look at it as a metaphor is the story of Percival, which is the knight who was loyal to King Arthur. Well, Percival wants to become a knight, but his mom is worried and doesn't want him to because his brother and father were knights and they were both killed in battle. Percival's mother wants him to stay at home with her forever. But he is set. He wants to become a knight, so he sets off for Camelot. But before he leaves, his mother knits him a tunic and tells him that he has to wear it always as protection. He agrees, then sets out. Well, he has many battles, but Percival's biggest test comes when he finds the Holy Grail for King Arthur. He does this twice. The first time he attempts to seize the Grail, he is thwarted because he is still a young man and in the throes of his own mother complex, symbolized by the tunic his mother has knitted for him. The second time, however, he is much more mature and able to take hold of the Holy Grail, thereby throwing off the old tunic his mother has knitted for him and now able to wear the full armor of the mature knight. The Holy Grail, in the story at least, represents the most evolved form of the anima, that being Sophia or something called the Great Mother Archetype. So essentially, Percival defeats his mother complex and is welcomed into the creative energy and the wisdom of the Great Mother Archetype, or his soul. Chris Watts is stuck. He is in a full unconscious battle with his mother complex, the terrible mother, the controlling mother who wants him to stay home with her, to be a perpetual boy, never a fully emotionally mature man. This is seen in his outward relationship with Shanann, where he becomes submissive, lets her take control of the relationship, sort of goes along with whatever she wants, and is generally in the background. This reminds me of the part in the documentary where the neighbor was talking to the police officer about how Chris was, quote, acting weird, because he never usually talked that much. 
he was the quiet in the background type. At least that's how it seemed. So the unconscious battle against the terrible mother or his complex was killing him. He was anima possessed, so to speak. But because his battle was unconscious, he projected it rather than doing the inner work he needed to in order to make it conscious. He projected his internal psychological battle onto his wife with the belief that by killing her, he would be killing off this feminine side of himself that was causing him so much pain. Another term that I use for this idea is externalization. A lot of men believe that the battle is somewhere out there. It takes some life experience and inner work to finally understand that the vast majority of life's battles are inner battles, not external ones. If we become conscious, we start the process of inner work necessary to nurture our anima and befriend her. If not, she becomes the terrible mother, which is what we will project onto the women in our lives. It makes sense that Chris Watts, much like the Scott Peterson case, was having an affair. Both of them saw a more evolved version of their inner anima in these women. That's not to say that the women were somehow more evolved, but remember, this is all a projection from the man. As long as the man is projecting his anima onto a flesh and blood woman, he won't be able to truly appreciate that woman's total humanness, just the projection. So yes, in a sense, Chris Watts was possessed, again, by his own inner demons, or as I would argue, this repressed anima which had turned incredibly dark. Instead of recognizing the battle as an inner one, he externalized it, he projected his dark anima onto his wife, and, in an attempt to break free from it, killed her and their children, who, it seemed, also represented ways that Shanann would always have control over him through their kids. You know, incredibly dark story. You know, the cops talked about Chris Watts being very egotistical, maybe even an, a narcissist. There was some talk of the two of them having money trouble in the beginning of their relationship. They declared bankruptcy in 2015. I think that the thought of a third child really triggered his complex as he knew he wouldn't be able to support family financially. That another child would tie him down even more to his projection of her and give her more control over him and so forth. Obviously, this is what happens in the most extreme cases of anima possession. As for most men, they just become crotchety and difficult as they get older when they're not doing their inner work. But for some, it manifests as extreme acts of violence, and I would argue that that's what's behind this case. Other family annihilators may be different, but that's my theory for this one. Well, and I think it's interesting because when you hear about mass murderers, right, and, you, and the psychology behind them, I've never heard of a Jungian explanation for that. So, you know, it's very interesting to me because that's not, you know, the type of psychology that I specialize in or that I did a lot of training in. But it, but it is kind of interesting and, and, you know, what you said about the fact that it wasn't really about the actual women that Shanann and, uh, you know, his girlfriend, Nicole, who they were. It right. was really about his own internal view of women and, and what he projected onto them. Absolutely. I would argue that it probably always is a projection. Yeah. Right. It's never about who the woman is unto themselves. It's about a projection and a, a, an idea that the man has of the woman being pro a projection of the women, the anima that he has living inside of himself. Yeah, that's, that's just very fascinating to me to kind of think about it from that perspective. You know, so of course, I'm going to take a little bit of a different spin on this case. And, you know, I wanted to talk about mass murderers. 
And I think that, you know, in the media, we see a lot of stories about mass murderers. And because of the way the media portrays them, I think most of us think of school shooters or others who open fire on large groups of people. But what some people don't realize is that this case, as well as other cases where multiple family members are murdered, are also examples of mass murder. Mass murder is defined as the killing of three or more people at a single location with no cooling off period between the murders. So that cooling off period is one of the main differences between mass murder and serial killing. Serial killers also kill multiple victims, but there's that cooling off period where they kind of go back to their, you know, previous state. They're not actively seeking for victims. And then they'll kind of ramp up again. With mass murders, it's happening really all at one time, typically at one location, or it can be a few locations, but again, all in that same kind of time frame. So we talked in the Ed Gein episode about how there are different typologies of serial killers, if you remember. Right. Well, mass murderers are also divided into different types. So the FBI uses two types, classic and family. Classic would be the mass murderers people typically think of. You know, those situations where a person opens fire on a large crowd of people or things like school shootings. The family type applies to this case as well as to the DeFeo murders that we discussed in the episode on Amityville. So, David, just based on what the media portrays, what type of mass murder do you think is more common? I would say the school shooter types. The classic one. Right, classic. Well, actually, family mass murder is far more common than the other types of mass murder. That is chilling. Yeah, it really is. But, you know, because they're not often not as sensational from a media perspective, they're reported on less frequently. With family murders, it's generally another family member who commits the murders, and oftentimes that person will commit suicide. So these are often described as murder-suicide, so that might be another way that the media kind of portrays them. Just as with serial killers, different typologies of mass murderers have also been proposed. Park Dietz, who is a very famous forensic psychiatrist, authored an article entitled Mass, Serial, and Sensational Homicides, in the June 1986 edition of the Bulletin of the New York Academy of Medicine. This article was actually presented as part of a symposium on homicide in 1985. In this article, he wrote about three categories of mass murderers, which included family annihilators, who kill members of his or her family, pseudo-commandos, who are gun-obsessed and carefully plot their murders. This is probably what most people think of. And then set-and-run killers, who create a situation where the murders occur after they've been able to escape. So an example of a set-and-run killer is Ted Kaczynski, whom we also have discussed previously. Ah. So in this case, we're talking about a family annihilator, as you alluded to earlier. So familicide is another term for the killing of one's family. While many family annihilators are men, there have been some pretty high-profile cases of women as well. So probably the two best known that I could think of were Susan Smith, who pushed her car where her two children were strapped in into a lake, killing them both. And then Andrea Yates is another famous case. She's the woman who drowned her five children in the bathtub while experiencing postpartum psychosis. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the years since Dietz's paper in 1986, many have done additional research on family annihilators and further subcategories have been identified. 
Dr. N.G. Barrell, who is a well-known forensic psychologist and director of New York Forensic, has discussed three types of family annihilators in some um, interviews that he's given, and we'll have a link to one of those interviews on our website. He said one subset are individuals who are psychotic. This would be where Andrea Yates would likely fall. According to Dr. Barrell, the second are individuals who are experiencing financial stress and are trying to shield their families from embarrassment and humiliation. And the third type are those who are attempting to get out of a situation they perceive as intolerable. It could be an unwanted divorce, a desire to be with someone else, or a fear of losing custody of their children, or some other kind of stress. They decide to kill their family members as a way to change their situation. Now, this, of course, is not a good choice since they're typically caught and they're causing great harm to their loved ones and to society, but they may be emotionally overwhelmed at the time of the murder and react in response to their emotions. So it may not even necessarily be something that they've really thoughtfully planned out. Mm -hmm. It may be something that's kind of more reactive in nature. Okay. So I don't know if any of the experts have classified Chris Watts as one of these types of family annihilators. And as we've never met him and he's never explicitly said, we can't be sure exactly what his motivations for the killings were. While he reported feeling that something else was controlling him during the murders, there were no other reports that he was experiencing a mental illness. And that never came up as part of his trial. Right. So, you know, it's probably unlikely that he would fit into the psychotic subtype. No, I'm I'm ruling that out pretty much. Yeah, there, there doesn't really seem to be any evidence of that. Ever in his in his history right and even watching uh the interviews with him when he was on the news or watching the documentary there weren't really any other signs that he was experiencing a psychotic illness no he and matter of fact he was so collected that looking back on it it's icy is the way i would describe yeah, it. yeah it's very chilling right um so as we talked about we we do know that the fi- the family experienced financial stress in 2015 So that was, you know, three years prior to the murders. And I didn't see any information about their financial situation at the time of the murders. I know that you kind of speculated that maybe there was something there that having a third child would have financially stressed the family. I think that uh, having another child stresses all families, regardless of how many children they already have or their financial position. And that's not to say that it's not a welcome stress or a good stress because, you know, many families obviously want to have more children. But I think that just this day and age, the amount of financial pressure that comes with having children can be very, very scary. And that's not to say that that's any kind of justification for what Chris Watts did by no means. Of course not. But it's, you know, kind of looking at the motive and what what classification, what typology of mass murder he might fit into. Right. I, I think it was a trigger. N- no question. I think that that is probably when he started really thinking about this in terms of, you know, how, how he was going to extricate himself from the situation. Well, and it's interesting because in Dr. Barrell's typologies, right, he said the financial one is really about shielding the family from embarrassment because of financial hardship. And, you know, in this case, you know, perhaps that was part of his motivation. I don't really know, but it, it definitely wasn't anything that was explicit from any of the any of the research that we did into this case. Yeah, I don't that one doesn't really sit well with me. I remember reading your notes on that 
there was some information regarding Shanann's job. Uh-huh. She had just actually gotten a new job and had increased her salary considerably before the murders. As a matter of fact, they this company was really treating her very well. She was making new friends and they were flying her to different places for training. So it was actually quite a welcome sort of promotion for her in terms of her career. So really, I mean, if that's the case, then that may have even decreased some of the financial stress on the family. I think that that probably did initially, but Uh I don't know what that would have weighed out when you add in another child. Okay. So we don't know the second typology, the financial one. Does it fit for for Chris Watts? Does it not? There there may be some evidence on both sides of that. Sure. Um, So we do know that Chris Watts did admit to having an affair and having a conversation with his wife prior to murdering her about them ending their relationship. Uh, He has said that she told him that he would not have any further contact with his children. And he reported experiencing rage during that conversation. So, you know, all of that information is certainly consistent with that third type of family annihilator that Dr. Beryl has described. So, you know, I was also thinking about these typologies in regard to the DeFeo murders, and those I feel like were a bit more tricky. Um, You know, DeFeo did report experiencing hallucinations, and he pled insanity. Right. And while that defense was not successful, it's still possible that he did experience hallucinations, especially if he was using certain substances at the time of the murders in the Amityville house. Right. Uh, There's also been speculation that there was a financial motive to the murders as he requested to receive that insurance money. And there were reports that Ronald Jr. felt that he was a disappointment to his parents and that he saw his father as abusive. So that case is a little bit more difficult to kind of fit into one of these categories. And I think when we're looking at these typologies, sometimes there's crossover and individuals will fit into more than one. So I don't I would be interested in what some of the experts in this area would say. But you know, overall I think the Watts family murders it's just such a tragic story. To have the lives of three children and a young woman ended so needlessly. Right. You know, it's just it, I think that's why we were so drawn to this case. It's just it's so hard to understand how somebody could do it. Well, I think it's such an extreme overreaction to the fear of what may potentially come out of a divorce. You know, when you when you would do this legally, the separation, the money it's going to cost, all those things I think are probably very scary for a lot of people when they're going through that kind of a situation. But this is such a dramatic overreaction to that, such an extreme reaction. That, to me, it it just screams that there is much more going on here psychologically for him. Yeah. And the fact that he could be so callous about it. I I don't remember seeing much emotion from him during, you know, the shots they showed of the trial or anything like that. When I remember us watching as this was unfolding, you know, the interview where he went on the local news and was pleading for his family... And it's like, you know, just kind of putting yourself as much as you can in that situation to know that you've murdered and buried, disposed of the bodies of your entire family. And then to go on, you know, television news and be able to hide any sort of emotion about that. 
it's just, it, it's very hard to, to wrap your head around. And, and, you know, you've said it many times, we've worked, you know, with uh, offenders, with people who have been involved with the criminal justice system for many, many years. And even having that experience behind us, it's still, when you come across a case like this, it's so, it's still chilling. It's still chilling. So are, do you, what are you thinking? Are you leaning psychopath? No, you know, I think that that's a very, like, difficult term to place on somebody that we don't have all that much information about his background and history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I really, I couldn't say that. I, you know, I think that there are probably a lot of factors at play, some of which you talked about, and other things as well. But there's definitely a callousness that I think was was evident in this case. Uh-huh. Now, whether or not he has other traits, I, I really can't speak to that. Well, no, and I think, you know, one of the things that that he did do is he did not take the case to trial. Um, and he said that he did not do that because he didn't want the families to have to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that does, you know, potentially show some regard for other people. I see. Um, and he did eventually confess to all of the elements of of what he did. Right. Um, so, you know, I think it's hard to say, but definitely this particular action was incredibly callous and just horrific. You wonder if he didn't do that, though, to spare himself, if there wasn't some element of this, this idea of him just pleading guilty was self-serving in another way. You know, but I know that people with personality disorders can tend to be contentious just to be contentious, even though they probably have a good idea. Yes, I'm guilty of this and I'm probably going to go to prison for it, but I'm going to make them go through this trial just to make them go through the trial. Yeah, and I think that that does happen. And, you know, until he kind of says what his and even then, I mean, we, we may never know what his true motivation was for confessing. We can only base it on what he said. Right. right? So anyway, we are going to wrap this episode up. Um, we are going to have some links related to this episode on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also comment there if you so choose. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. So feel free to send us a message or post comments to us there as well. We really appreciate you guys listening. And uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus both provided by Gemendo.